More than ever, it seems we are constantly bombarded, sometimes even drawn in, by the never-ending conflict and despair towards the future. As followers of Jesus, we press through the difficulties because there is a promise and a hope for the future. But what about those who don't know that hope? How can we live out the promise of the coming kingdom in our present moment with those around us? Well, hey, good morning. I hope everyone's doing well. Are you doing well? All right, good. Good enough. I like it. That's cool. Um, well, hey, welcome to Grace Church, Medina's campus, all right? My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors on staff, if we've never met before. Would love to meet you. I'll be hanging out in the cafe afterwards. Uh, if you don't know, I, I help out with Give It Away, and so I feel like I say this often, but I love Give It Away, and that's how we share the story and message of Jesus to our community and to our world, and so I love being all about that kind of stuff. So, I am excited about this weekend um, because this weekend we're starting a new series. We're in this uh, letter, sometimes we call it a book, it's a letter in First Thessalonians. And so as we do this together for the next several weeks, this is a five-week thing, as we do that, I want to encourage you to pick up one of these nifty ESV scripture journals that we have. Um, anyone pick them up already? Okay, maybe, maybe. Okay, I see, I see a hand. Cool. So good. All right. So is that something you say? I don't know. But um, I, there's these journals over there. You can buy them at the Welcome Center in pairs. And so we do that very intentionally because we want to say, hey, why don't you not just grab a journal for yourself, but why don't you bring somebody else with you to go through First Thessalonians together in community. And so we want to foster that kind of thing that we call discipleship or disciple making. And so all that just means is why not read the Bible with somebody else in community, learning from the word and learning from each other together in community, right? I also want to challenge you um, to read all five chapters in one sitting, okay, in one sitting. Uh, it only costs you about two episodes of Bluey, okay? And so if you don't, all right, you guys are parents, that's good. If you don't know what Bluey is, uh, you're probably, you probably don't have kids, that's fine, but you are missing out on quality content, okay? So it's about like 15 minutes. It's about 15 minutes to read all five chapters of this letter, and it'll be good for you. I, I, I encourage you to do that. All right, and you might not be a journal kind of person, okay? And I get that. These ESV scripture journals, it's literally just like uh, 1 Thessalonians on the left, notes on the right, and you just take notes, right? You might not be a journal person. I get that. I'm not either. But what I found is that it's actually joyful doing it, okay? It's joyful going through with somebody and just taking note of what God is doing. And so for that reason, I just want to give you two simple questions to use as you go through 1 Thessalonians with another person, okay? And that's this. What is God doing? Okay, pretty simple. Uh, maybe, but like when you read, just be like, okay, what is God up to? What is he doing in this moment? What was he up to in this time? What's he doing now? And then a follow-up reflection question is, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so those two questions as an encouragement. If you're like, I don't know where to start. I don't do journaling. Uh, just start here. Okay, start with these two questions. These are actually questions that somebody who discipled me when I first came to know Jesus, like embedded into me, and I've used it ever since. And so I want to encourage you to do that same thing. This might not get you into an in-depth Bible study, but it will get you into the discipleship process of processing what has God up to and what are you going to do about the things that you're reading in his word and community with others. Okay. Something else to take note on um, as we go through each chapter is that each chapter of Thessalonians speaks to what a disciple of Jesus looks like as we live out and practice the way of Jesus in the present, while also being focused on the future kingdom that is to come. 
the future event of Jesus coming back. Hence our slogan that we have here, kingdom living in the present. So what does it look like to live with this kingdom that we uh, have here now, but expecting the kingdom to return, or Jesus to return and establish his kingdom, okay? So you kind of have that vibe throughout all of Thessalonians. You'll see what to do today in the context of, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. So that influences what we do today. Okay? So that's kind of a roadmap of where we had it a little bit. So if you are already in First Thessalonians, because Pastor Kevin just read it for us, um, stay there. I'm going to have a Bible. If you want a Bible, there's some in the seat backs behind you as well. But keep a finger in there or whatever you need to do. Um, we're going to go to Acts 17 as well. So we're actually going to start out in Acts 17. So if you want to go there, it's just to the left of ways from First Thessalonians. And I'm not going to have the scriptures on the screen. I'm just going to be reading from my Bible. So however you want to focus on that, just on me reading out loud or you reading it with me, however you want to do that. Because Acts 17 gives us a really cool backstory of what First Thessalonians is all about and why that letter was even written. So sound good? All right. Sounds good to me, so we'll keep going. All right, so chapter 17 of Acts, okay? Verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10. So, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer And rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I don't know why I always chuckle at that part, but they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue to do the very same thing again. So that's a little bit of the backstory that helps us understand why this letter is being written. And so let me just summarize it for you a bit here and some points, some key points of this summary, okay? So this area, Thessalonica, okay, it's a real-life place. You can go that, to that area today, but in this day, it was a popular port city, and that's where a lot of work and trade and political uh, ideas and politics and culture was at. So this was a very influential place. This was a very big city for these kind of things, okay? So that's some context about the city itself. And then something interesting about Paul, we see a little bit into his missionary journeys. This is like what you call one of his missionary journeys. Here's what he did. It says that he went to a place, he went to a Jewish synagogue in the city, and he reasoned with them with the scriptures, okay? And then he found some people convert to Christianity. There's this uh, conversion that's happening. People that are like, okay, I believe that. Jesus rose and died, uh, died and rose, and okay, I'm all about it. So we see that happen. And then we see opposition happen. And then we see eventually Paul and some people have to escape. 
And then he goes and does the same thing again. He doesn't like chill out like maybe I would. He's like, okay, if I'm gonna get kicked out, I'm gonna go and do the same thing. So you see this pattern that Paul has. He's just like really resilient in all of that. And so that's what he does. And then something notable, some Jews persuaded, okay? So some of the Jews that he talked to, was talking to, they converted, they, persu- they were persuaded to know Jesus, but some started a mob, okay? Remember, he rounded up some bad characters and he started a mob. And so there was this riot going on. And that was from the, the people that were following after God. They started this riot, this mob in the town. And the ESV says that these people are turning the world upside down. They're like turning this place upside down with talking about and proclaiming this good news about this Jesus guy. And so that's what happens. And then, last thing to note here, it says something that we can easily just skip through. It's really easy to just read through scripture and just skip through things. You're like, I don't know what that means, whatever, cool, moving on. But it says that a large number of God-fearing Greeks came to know Jesus as well. Okay, so something notable about that is, in the ESV it says devout Greeks. So there's these God-fearing Greeks, there's, there's, there's these devout Greeks that became persuaded to follow Jesus as well. Something interesting is that these are not Greeks that are already deciding to follow after Jesus and put their allegiance in Jesus. These are Greeks that are God-fears or devout to the gods of their culture, which there were many. See, in this area of Thessalonica, it's the area in which um, the assassination of Julius Caesar would have happened, okay? And so you might remember, maybe not, but you might remember from high school social studies or history class of uh, Julius Caesar. And basically after that assassination, I'm not going to get into all that history stuff, but um, in that time, in that, assassination, in that assassination, his nephew, Julius Caesar's nephew and adopted son, they basically named Julius Caesar as a god. They're like, Julius Caesar, he was a god, and we're going to make that so. Okay, so he was a god, and therefore his sons and grandsons became sons of God. And they proclaim that, okay? So they're proclaiming that stuff. And so why is that important? Well, that gives us some further insight into the danger that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are putting themselves into by going into this area and preaching that there is only one true God, and it's not Julius Caesar. And that anyone that would follow after Jesus would be become part of God's family and therefore become sons and daughters of God, adopted into God's kingdom. Not just Julius Caesar's offsprings, but anybody that would follow Jesus became sons and daughters of God, the one true God. And so that causes some tension, right? This means that these pastors, these disciples in this area starting this church is now not only enemies of the state, but they're disruptors of the marketplace, of the economy. It was all intertwined, of social status and ultimately the Greco-Roman lifestyle, And that's why it says that they were defying Caesar's decrees and turning the world upside down. And that's just what the gospel does. That is what what kingdom living in the present does. It turns culture, political ideals, marketplace behavior, social norms, everything like that upside down to the point where you can't 100% adopt these cultural norms and be a disciple of Jesus without that causing some serious tension at times. You can't 100% be about a political idea or, or party and, or view and give your allegiance to Jesus without that causing some serious tension sometimes when it comes to God's word and God's message, okay? So that's the background. That's where we find ourselves, okay? So then we get to 1 Thessalonians. So if you are holding on to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to go a little bit verse by verse into there. Um, So get back to there. We're going to get back to there in a second. But I want to imagine this before we dive in. Imagine this scenario. Imagine this. 
Imagine the Medinese campus. Okay, you can do that because we're all here. Okay, so imagine the Medinese campus. And we do, there's one thing that we are praying for and setting out to do. And we, we want to plant a new campus. We talk about that often. We want to plant another campus of Grace Church. So say we do that. Say we do that. We send some pastors and leaders and a bunch of people that are part of this new church. And let's just say that you are one of those people as well. So you're helping start this new church. We see um, three weeks in preaching and talking to people. We see people come to know Jesus. Uh, We see that happening. At the same time, as we're seeing people come to know Jesus, uh, we see that the church, especially the pastors and leaders, are getting heavily persecuted and forced out of town. And so now what do we do? We're a brand new church. Our pastors and leaders are forced out of town. What do we do now? There's no other churches nearby. We have new believers that need discipled, and we can't imagine doing this without community. So we wait. We continue to disciple in community. We continue to worship and hear God's word. We're probably nervous because we just saw our leaders and our home church leader get uh, bribed um, to stop sharing their faith. Our leaders are kicked out of town. What do we do? Then all of a sudden, months later, months after all that goes down of waiting and, and expecting and trying to figure this thing out, we hear from our pastors. And that is what First Thessalonians is. All right, that's what First Thessalonians is. After all that goes down, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying, hey, church, we hear from you. And so we get this letter. So imagine this time. They would have received this letter. The entire church would have been eager to hear this letter. Someone would have come up to, um, this, it was probably in a home church, so they probably would have had people in their home and call that church, and they would say, we got this letter from our leaders. They responded. They're talking to us. And everybody was eager to hear it. And in that time, they probably... For our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what you think about the words grace and peace, but the word grace here, we kind of use that on accident. I mean, our church is named Grace after all. But the original readers, the hearers of this, they would have been instantly reminded of this deep and reassuring language of the gift that they have been given. The gift to know and be known by Jesus, despite the things that we have done in our past, despite the things that we have worshipped aside from him, all of that. And that we are in Christ. Those that know him, we are in Christ. We are known by him. We are entered into his kingdom. And that is a glimpse of what grace means. And then he doesn't say just grace to you. He says peace to you as well. For the original here, they would have heard the word shalom. The word shalom, it means a little bit more than what we think of with peace. Sometimes when we think of peace, we think the absence of like danger and things like that. But in this word, he would say, no, peace to you, unity, I, a blessing of unity to you, a blessing of do you remember that you are in right relationship with God, peace to you, church. And so 
It's easy to lose that impact of this like initial greeting of this letter and this like blessing. This letter, after all, it's not to us. It's to this church, to the original church a long time ago, right? But it is for us. This is what was called a circular letter. So this letter would have went around to other areas and to other churches in the early church as it goes around in our churches today. That's what we call a circular letter. And so this letter continues to be an encouragement and an admonishment even to us to stay in the presence of Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. Although Paul and his other uh, missionary companions, they have a habit of going to a place of creating a church and then getting kicked out and leaving and doing the same thing over again, they don't mean to neglect or forget at all of those that they have reached and established in the faith. The church is always part of their prayers. To say, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. This doesn't necessarily mean that Paul and the others are constantly praying and inevitably making us wonder, wow, how do they just always constantly be in prayer? Like, you look at your prayer life and you're like, I don't pray all the time like this. Think of it like this way. Think of it as like our pray for your three situation. That's something that we promote at this church. We say, hey, if you, um, if you want to be reminded, we have stickers, we have wristbands, we have things like that you can like put anywhere and remind you to be praying for three people that you want to come to know Jesus. Does that mean you're praying 24-7 nonstop for them? No. That means that you're like committed to that. We are committed. When we are praying, we are praying for these things. We are praying for these three people. And just like uh, us on staff at church, we always say that we are praying for you all the time. Does that mean that I'm praying for you 24-7? I'm sorry I don't. But when I am praying, I am praying for you, right? And so that's what it means. We are making the effort and the point to be praying for you. And that is a model of prayer for us that we see right here. And what are they praying for? They're praying for and remembering before God these things, a series of things that you can call affirmations or virtues that we see of this church. And really, these affirmations, these virtues, these are markers of a discipled person or people that have come to know Jesus and continue to work on and come under the leadership, the apprenticing under Jesus and following after him. And there's three things that Paul mentions. He mentions faith, love, and hope. Those are three things that Paul mentions in other letters as well in the New Testament, and so it's a common theme. We see that trend um, that he has, but it's actually not the main focus. So let's look at this again. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work that's produced by faith, your labor that's prompted by love, and your endurance that is inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the NIV says it well. It's, it emphasizes these things of labor, of work, of endurance, okay? So he's looking at something specific here. So let's look at that. Number one, we're focusing on this church and we're saying, wow, this is a model church. Look at their work. Look at what they're doing. Look at their work. It's produced by their faith. Elsewhere, you'll see Paul um, talk, to, talk about faith and talk about salvation as not being of any works of the law or works that you or I could do to attain righteousness or right relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do to come to be saved in that way, right? But here's the thing. This never meant that Paul was against works. Never meant that at all. In fact, here, he affirms the Thessalonians in their works. Why? Because it was produced by their faith. So in this example, the work that Paul is likely referring to is that these churches, they, this church in Thessalonia, in Thessalonica, they were an example to faithfully follow after and to put their allegiance into Jesus, despite the persecutions around them. 
Imagine, imagine if they just came to know Jesus and never worked to meet together, never worked to make an effort, never worked to make an effort to study the scriptures together, never worked to pray for each other, to pray for others, or to share the gospel with people in their community. They just had the persecution, their leaders took off, and they're like, whoa, that was crazy. We're like done. Imagine if they didn't work hard for that. Imagine if they didn't work to change their entire lifestyle toward one that exhibits the way of Jesus. Would have been a different letter. Maybe for Paul, it's like, of course you have faith. Jesus gave that to you. You, We modeled that for you. But wow, you are actually putting it to work. And so this is an encouragement. He's saying, well done, church. Look at what your work is doing. Your work is being produced by your faith, and it's showing up everywhere. That's a model church. Next, he talks about their labor that was prompted by love. This church, they would have engaged in a costly way of loving one another, a relationship thing. Uh, They constantly uh, engaged in loving one another in a way that was laborious and sacrificial. This kind of labor that that is prompted by love is one that I think we can really understand by uh, those that are parents, okay, those that are uh, foster parents as well. And so we recently uh, recorded a video for Fostering Family Ministries, and we recorded one of our uh, foster parents as well. And so what a beautiful testimony. I'm not going to get too much into that, but there's a beautiful testimony that was shared And then nothing in that testimony suggests that it is easy at all to invite strangers, especially small strangers, into your home and share the love and labor that comes with loving other humans in that way, in difficult situations. Yet because of the love of Jesus, this family and others live for sacrificially to labor and to love others in relationship. That's what we see of this church. They're like, man, we are with difficult people. We are with people that are part of this Greco-Roman culture. We are people that have these idols that are not Jesus. We have people that are difficult to love, yet we're going to go for it anyways. This is the same love that Jesus has for us and modeled to us. This was a model church in that way. So think about this. For all of you in life group, all right, all of you that are in life group, when you go to life group this week, remember the Thessalonians example, laboring for others prompted by love. Let's be honest, there's people that are hard to love, even in our communities. There are people that are difficult to love through. And so this example is saying, yeah, sometimes it is a labor of love. Not one that should be taken advantage of, but one that we should be doing for one another. So when you have that difficulty, think about this example. Think about, man, this church, they were persecuted. They had all of these things going for them, but they labored for this. They're like, no, we're going to do this relationship thing. We're going to do it well, and probably imperfectly, (laughs) but we're going to go for it. So if we're looking for a community that is free of difficulty, if we're looking for a life group that's like, man, I I just need a life group that's free of this relational difficulty, then maybe we need to set our expectations better, okay? That could be unrealistic because this kind of community, uh, this kind of biblical community that we see in the letters, in this letter, it is from a labor of love. It takes work. It takes work to be in relationship with one another. Lastly, we see this endurance that is inspired by hope. Now, there's a recognition of their endurance to this church that has been inspired by the one in which they put their hope in, which is Jesus, the one who will one day return and promise to do that. So this virtue of hope isn't the kind of hope where you're saying, oh man, I hope I get better at pickleball, okay? Which I never thought I'd ever say, but I said that this last week, okay? I tried it for my first time. It's fine. I don't know what the hype is, but it's cool, all right? Um, So it's not that kind of hope, all right? Although that does take endurance, I found, okay? Um, It's not that kind of hope. It's the kind of hope that you're like, no, 
We know that this Jesus is coming back. That's what we're putting our hope in, this promise. There's a promise that we're putting our hope in. And so despite what's going on, despite the culture around us, we are putting our hope in that, in that, and we are going to endure whatever comes our way because we know who is ultimately Lord of all. We know who is coming back. They endured seeing their pastors and home church leader, host, taken away by local officials because of the proclamation of their faith. The devout Greeks that we just talked about a little bit ago, they likely endured loss of jobs because of what they were doing at worst, or credibility socially at best. They no longer put their hope in these false idols and these social norms that they were supposed to be doing. They didn't put their hope in those things anymore. They put their hope in the return of Jesus who raised from the dead and promised to come back. And then Paul continues in verse four. We'll read verse four through eight. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. All right, some things to point out here. He talks about how you have been chosen. And so in some Christian circles, we like to argue about what this means. But for the sake of argument and time, here's what I think Paul and his crew is really trying to communicate. How awesome is it that you are known by God? that you are loved by God, that you are part of a chosen people known and having relationship with God. For anyone that puts their trust, their faith, their allegiance in Jesus, choosing to follow after him in his word and in his ways, you are part of a chosen people. Praise God. How awesome is that? And so how do you know if you're a part of this? With words, with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. One of the ways that you can know that you are in Christ is by experiencing the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding us toward biblical convictions, toward that. So once we were following the ways of our selfishness, the ways of our own sin, the ways of the culture, but now you are following the way of Jesus, taking his lead in your life, even when it's hard, even amidst severe suffering. That's what happens when you hear the gospel, when you receive the gospel and you respond to it with your life and to the person of Jesus. When you experience the life-changing gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit and conviction, you experience this. You become imitators, okay? So they experienced all that so much so that they became imitators, copiers of us and of the Lord. So they didn't just copy or imitate their leaders that were showing them a life of following after Jesus. They followed the Lord because of it. Paul had no idea what would happen after he left after he got kicked out of this church in this area. Yet this church was grabbing hold of the gospel message on their own, following the joy and the lead of the Holy Spirit, becoming a model example for us even, and a model example of what a disciple of Jesus looks like for all to see. A disciple of Jesus is just, it's more than just a follower, more than just a fan of Jesus. It's somebody who comes under the leadership, puts their allegiance into Jesus, becomes an apprentice of him, the master teacher, letting them be Lord of everything in our life. 
And so not only were they a good model of this, but in their modeling, they actually pushed forward the gospel so much so that it rang out. They said the Lord's message, the gospel, rang out. It echoed out. It reverberated out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So these people were known for, from everywhere. They, their message, it rang out, became known everywhere. Paul is saying, I don't even know why I'm saying this to you. Like, everyone knows what's happening here. It's crazy. Like, we weren't even there. Like, we got kicked out, and you guys are just doing it. Good job, church. Everyone sees your faith. Wow, imagine if we can continue to say that in our churches today. But this is what happens when the gospel message, the way of Jesus, becomes real in your life and the life of our church. Not perfectly, but continually. So you can't, when that happens, you can't help but to share it with others. I mean, we think about it. We share things that we get excited about, right? We share, um, we share about times that are life-changing and worth sharing, like when we get engaged, when we have a new baby, when we play pickleball, right? We share those things, okay, with others. And so how much more should we share the gospel with others? Not to lose that love that we've had, that excitement that we had when we first came to know Jesus. We share that. Imagine if we turned our workplace upside down, to use the language of Acts, not, for, not in a way by, of like debates of political things or which move you saw this week, but by the gospel and by your way of life that is different from others that are around you. Imagine that. But over and over again, the gospel needs to impact our life. And as it's doing that, it's going to be seen to other people and it's going to be known. All right. So that's the thing that we see that is modeled here. They are proclaiming this. They're becoming imitators of it. And so much to where everyone is hearing all about it. And then lastly, verse 9 to 10, they'll go on and say, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. There's another report coming back to the church leaders. Not only was this church becoming a great example, a great model of imitating Jesus and all that they are doing, but they were also seeing people turn from these idols, turn from these things that were just so integrated into their culture and into their life. Yet, this is another verse that can easily be skipped over, but check out the deeper context here, okay? I'm going to use some words, all right? This was a Hellenistic Greco-Roman culture, all right, which all that means is that this is a place where the gods of Greek thought, the gods of Roman thought, they merged together, and then all of a sudden you have a list of readily available gods to worship in any aspect of your daily life, okay? The question in this culture isn't, is there a god? Like the, like the question is usually in our culture right now, the question was, which God should I turn to in this scenario, in this situation? To see this group of devout Greeks almost, almost immediately or instantly turn from these idols to serve the living and true God would have been very disruptive in this culture in this time. N.T. Wright, he has a, uh, a commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. In this regard, he says this, that this was simply unheard of in Paul's world. It would be like asking people in a modern city to give up using motor cars. Who uses the word motor cars? Computers and telephones. The gods of Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere. If you were going to plant a tree, you would pray to that relevant god. If you were going on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. If you or your son or daughter was getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. 
At every turn in the road, the gods were there, unpredictable, possibly malevolent, sometimes at war among themselves, so that you could never do too much in the way of placating them, making sure you got them on your side. So you can see how this was totally entrenched into their culture, into their marketplace, into their work, into their trade, everything that they did. Basically, it's like our phones. We have an app for everything, just like they have a God for literally everything. And everyone wanted to be on the good side of the God at the right time. So sometimes we talk about idols, okay? And when we do that, I think it could be a really abstract and hard thing for people to understand, myself including. It seems very straightforward in this historical context who uh, an idol was and who you would worship. And we can easily look at that and say, oh yeah, they literally worshipped like Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, Apollo, and so on. They literally had images of these gods and other symbols that they would worship as idols. And so when we think of it that way, it's easy to have that view. When we think of it that way, it's easy to look at our life and be like, yeah, I don't like kneel down to a, a wooden Zeus doll, uh, unless you do. But, uh, you know, we typically don't do that, okay? We don't do that kind of thing in our culture in our day today. I'm good. I, like, there's no idols here. I'm doing all right. But hold on. Let's think about the, the actual definition of idol, okay? There's many ways you can define it, but here is one way that you can define what an idol is. Think about this. It could be the ways in which individuals and society in general can elevate certain things to a position of ultimate value and authority in a way that distracts from or even omits the worship of the one true God of Jesus. Okay, so with that definition, how are we doing? What idols do we have? What, what are the things that we elevate to authority and to position and to value that maybe takes priority of Jesus in our lives? What are those things? It, may, it might not be as a wooden Zeus doll, but it might be something else. What are those things for you and for me? It happens. It sneaks into our way of living. We're not much different from the biblical times. The, maybe it's just a little more tricky, it seems, this, these days, because we don't typically physically bow down or worship like our workout equipment or our, our beauty supplies or textbooks or things like that. No, the question for us as followers of Jesus today, the things that we need to ask is, if someone saw my life, like my actual life. Someone saw my actual life, how I actually live, not just how I play my life in work or school and places like that, but my actual life. They saw my actual passions, what I actually think about in my, in my headspace, the things that I actually talk about, the money I spend. Does it model, does it imitate the person, the way, and the life of Jesus? That's just a question we should be asking. So with that, this last verse is something very interesting that's said here, okay? So this last verse talks about how, all right, we just talked about how they, they turn to gods from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul and his team right here in a shorthand way, they're defining the gospel it's not a full picture of the gospel by any means, but it's at least a reminder to the readers and to us of the gospel in which they preached and in which this church has followed after and have, imit have been imitating and proclaiming to others. It's that God's actual son came from heaven, lived with us, died for us, raised again, is our rescuer from sin, death, this world as we know it, the idols that we've had in our life, all of that, and that there is a wrath to come. There is a wrath to come. There is a final judgment that is coming for those that follow Jesus and those that do not follow Jesus as well. 
We'll be judged by the way that we live. We'll be judged by our life, how we spent our life, the things that we did, the things that we say, all of those things. And that's not to be a scary thing, okay? That's not to be anything that's like guilt or shaming kind of thing. It's just the reality. And Paul and the guys are just talking about, hey, we're going to wait for his son well from heaven because here's the gospel. And by the way, he's coming back and there's a wrath to come. And so how do we live in light of all of that today? What do we do with that? What do we do with this gospel message and the message of this letter for us today? That is the encouragement. So we can talk about end things. We can talk about the things of Jesus' return. But if it's not in the context of discipleship, then we can lose sight of everything altogether. So let's talk about what it means for us today, for us now, in the present. So there's two things I want us to like leave off with. And those two things, as we talk about kingdom living in the present, are this. This idea of imitating and waiting. It's things we've already talked about. It's about imitating and waiting. And so I don't know if you want to write that down. If you have those journals, write that up there. That's something that we can just take through the rest of the series. How can we look at this model church and imitate what they were doing? We, if we have ever thought like, man, what would a good church look like? What would a good follower of Jesus look like? We're going to read through that. We're going to see. And so we'll see how to be good imitators in that way. Not everything we should imitate. There's some bad things. There's some things that Paul has to address, right? But we'll get to that in the weeks to come. So here's just a basic recap as we talk about imitating. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to recap. If this looks familiar, it's because it is. I'm just stealing all of our action items from the text, okay? So imitating. As we're thinking about what it looks like to be an imitator of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it probably should look like this. We should become people of continual prayer, okay? That's what Paul modeled right in the beginning there that we continually would be praying for others. So how are we becoming people of continual prayer? That's why we do things like pray for your three. Grab a sticker if you need a reminder. There's wristbands, I think, left. And so you can grab those things, helpful things, to remind you to continually being in prayer. You can pick some daily rhythms to have in your life. Do you have daily rhythms? Maybe you pray in the morning and in the afternoon. Pick some rhythms. Go for it. Next, let our work be produced by faith. Let our work be produced by faith. There's a cool quote by um, Dallas Willard that says, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Okay, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because our work is important. The thing that we do with our faith is important. We should act on that. We should work at that. We should do works, not because we're trying to get to God or appease God or anything like that. We've already got this faith. So let your faith produce good works in your life. Produce good works. Again, imagine this early church. If they just came to know Jesus and they're like, sweet, like we're good. So like we're in heaven now, so that's sweet. And don't do anything about it. No, we're called to do something with it. We're called to do something with our faith. It it should produce something. What is it producing in your life? Next, let our labor be prompted by love. Let our labor be prompted by love. Do we only settle for relationships that are easy? Do we only settle for relationships that are easy? I don't think this church did. This church needed each other. And I imagine these are people from all kinds of different backgrounds. We know that because it said it. There's Jews that were persuaded. There's devout Greeks. There's other people in this. They likely came from very different backgrounds. But the only thing tying together is the gospel, is the message of the gospel, right? And so how does that look in our life? When we go to life group, there, is there tension in relationships? That's going to happen. We have to labor for those relationships. That's prompted by our love. How's our endurance? 
Do you have endurance that's inspired by hope in Jesus? Living out the way of Jesus should cause some friction. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, if you're not doing, if you're not seeing friction, you're doing something wrong. I don't mean it like that at all. But our lifestyle, for those that follow after Jesus, it's gonna create some countercultural things, some, some cultural differences in our workplace, in our families. The way that we do things is gonna be different. That's gonna cause friction. You're gonna need endurance for those times of friction. How are you preparing for that? Next, share the gospel in word, with power, with Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Don't just pray. We should definitely pray. I already talked about that, right? Don't just pray for your three, but actually do something with them. Invite them over for dinner. Share the gospel with them. It's one thing to be praying, man, Lord, I really want so-and-so to come to know Jesus. Have you talked to them about Jesus? Let's go there. Let's do it. Let's have that conversation with the help of the word. The word will help you. It'll encourage you. It'll give you the tools that you need to go do that with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just even just praying like, Lord, Spirit, lead me to this situation. Help me have this conversation with others. It could be that simple. Next, become model disciples to other believers. Become model disciples to other believers. Okay, so have you ever discipled somebody? Have you ever been discipled by somebody? Those are questions that I often ask and use, okay? So if we are getting those ESV journals, scripture journals, okay, you have two of those, so who are you gonna ask to go through this with you? Who are you gonna ask? Maybe there's somebody that you're like, man, I really look up to this person. Ask them to go through it with you or, or vice versa. So who can we share Christ with? Who can we live this out with? How can we become model disciples to others as well? Turning from idols to serve Jesus. What are the things distracting you from being, from being all in for Jesus to letting him be Lord over your life? We just did a whole series on that. Go back to that series. What are the things that we still aren't giving up to him? What are these idols that we have in our life? How can we turn from them to serve Jesus? What does that look like for you? Lastly, with imitating, waiting well for Jesus. Now, this, is, this, this waiting part is interesting to me. It's just a quick thing that's said in verse 10 at the end of the chapter. But when is the last time that you thought about how well are you waiting for Jesus' return? Are you waiting well? What, what does that look like for you? Paul and his team, they mention that very quickly, this idea of waiting for God's son in heaven. What kind of waiter are you? I know that sounds kind of funny, but what kind of waiter are you? All right, I'll invite the band up and I'll, and I'll continue this process with you, but what kind of waiter are you? Are you, are you the patient kind of person? Are you impatient? Do you get frustrated uh, when, when you have to wait for something? Uh, or when you have to wait for whatever it might be. So some things to process through in this. There's three questions I want to have for you. How do you wait in everyday situations? That could be telling for how you maybe think about waiting for Jesus. Are, are you the person that's patient or impatient? Are you, maybe you're a forgetful waiter, all right? So have you ever like pre-ordered something? Okay, I, I have an example of this. Um, I forgot about this. I like pre-ordered this like Lego Mandalorian thing. Whatever, okay, I'm a nerd. I can get into some other nerdy things I pre-ordered too, but there was this thing from Target I pre-ordered. It was like this $15 little Mandalorian set. I was like, Isaiah, my son, would love this, and I pre-ordered it, and I didn't even, I forgot about it. I didn't even tell my wife about it, okay? And so, like, months later, I think it was like five months later, we get this thing in the mail, and I was like, what in the world? Oh, yeah, I pre-ordered this, okay? So I totally forgot, all right? So why do I share that silly example? Sometimes that's happening with us, with followers of Jesus. We totally forget that we're, like, waiting for Jesus to actually come back. What are we doing in the process? The things that we're doing in the process are really important. 
So how are we waiting? What, are, what do we do in our everyday situations that might be telling of how we need to readjust as we think about this idea about waiting for Jesus' return? Next, do you have a gospel response to difficulties? Do you have a gospel response to difficulties? How are you preparing with God's word and in community for the difficulties that will come when you do share your faith, when you do labor for love and people don't receive that, when, when you do have endurance because, man, there's things that are, there's people talking about you because you're the way that you live your life, all of these things. How do you respond? Are you responding well to those things or not so well? And so one of the ways that we can view that is, man, if I'm waiting well, if I remember that, okay, Jesus is coming back one day, and so what I do now is important. The way I respond to this little situation this day, that's important. Can I have a gospel response to that? Next, does your life today show hope for the future? Does your life today show hope for the future? Are you living with the kingdom in mind? Are you living with the kingdom in mind? There's so many people, and myself including, that I can really be like down and out about things on the daily, right? And so sometimes my life doesn't show or resemble a hope that I have. So is that you? That's me at times. What are we gonna do about that? Does our life today show hope for the future? How can we be people imitating that? Like, why are you so happy? Like, why are you smiling so much? Even something like that. And it's like, aha, because I have a hope. I have a hope in Jesus. And you can share that with others. All right, part of waiting for Jesus' return means that we can look at the troubles, the pain, and the, the sin and the inefficiencies of the world that we live in and not let it shake us, not let any of that stuff shake us. We wait, we imitate Jesus in everyday life, in all of the areas of our life, because we know who is really Lord of all. We know who is returning. And so for many of you, that is your hope in living out the kingdom today. For, for anyone else in this room, if you've never made that hope for Jesus real in your life, what are you waiting for? Let's pray about those things. Let's do that now. Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you that we have actual hope in an actual return of you, God, of your son returning to us to make all things new, to wipe away every tear, all of these things that you tell us, these promises that we have with you. God, I pray that as we go through this letter that we will be encouraged by it, God, that we would be um, able to be a church that says, wow, this is a model church for us to look at. And so how do we adjust? How do we adjust accordingly? How can we be like this church that worked so well for their faith, because of their faith? How do we be a church that, wow, we are people that are laboring for this love and all of these things that we see, God? I pray that we become an imitating church in that way. I pray that as individual disciples in this room that we would be good imitators and models of following after Jesus. Of course, that's not gonna be perfect, but I pray that that's continual. God, help us to do that in community for real. God, help us uh, lead us with your spirit to be able to do that, to be able to share the gospel so that even in this space right here in Medina, Ohio, that, that the name of Grace Church wouldn't be reverberated, but the name of Jesus would be reverberated to all other places because of our faithfulness in you, Jesus. Lord, we hope and expect you and your return God, thanks for helping us live in the meantime. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.